Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm here every week with some wonderful women from the Philadelphia area and across the country as well who are doing some amazing things. And I'm thrilled to have in the studio with me this morning Katie Kleber, who is CEO of the Marcellus Shale Coalition, um, which is a group that supports the development of natural gas from the Appalachian Basin. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Um, as we always do, I'd like to start out learning a little bit about you, Katie, and um, where you grew up and a little bit about your background, your school years, and your family to give people a sense of um, what happened prior to your position as CEO. Sure. Um, that, that's uh, that's very kind. But yeah, I grew up in western Pennsylvania in Beaver County and um, from uh, two families uh, that both came from the steel industry. And you know, so that, that manufacturing heritage was certainly a part of the, um, uh, of the ancestry of both my mother and father's families. Uh, and you know, went to, um, went to college in Central Pennsylvania at Bucknell University, and I'm probably dating myself, but in, in uh, wanting to major in environmental science, there there wasn't a major yet, so you had to kind of piece it together from geology and biology, chemistry, uh, and um, uh, civil engineering, and, and other courses. And I think that that kind of um, diverse uh, approach to a degree that was very customized to the kind of things I wanted to study has gotten much more common. But at the time, uh, it was uh, it was really Thrilling to be working on uh, on those issues, literally uh, in the field. Spent ten years uh, with uh, an international environmental consulting firm that was actually headquartered here in Philadelphia, Environmental Resources Management. At first here in Philadelphia, and then uh, uh, was moved out to, back to Pittsburgh, back home um, to uh, uh, to run the Pittsburgh office there. And in the meantime, um, you know, my husband and I, uh, who've now been married for twenty three years, had our first son here in Philadelphia, and so he uh, he wears his Eagles jersey, um, usually only after the Steelers are out of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, okay. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, what was uh, interesting after 10 years in uh, really that first job is uh, you know there uh, the, there are ways that you want to keep reinventing yourself, um, not some drastic change, but to continue to improve on the the kind of things that you can do in your career and the kind of things that you know will continue to uh, to, to stimulate you both intellectually and provide new opportunities. And at that point. Um, uh, I had uh, always been interested in going back to business school and went to Carnegie Mellon University. And there, um, what's called now the Tepper School of Business, uh, was really a great place to uh, apply a lot of quantitative rigor to the issues that businesses face you know, every day and, and uh, have uh, never, never looked back on that commitment of time and resources uh, as having um, really paid off uh, you know, in the long run. And I'm sure that, will, uh, that, that advanced degree will continue uh, to, to, to pay dividends. And, um, you know, after that, I spent um, the second stage of my career with a very unique organization uh, called the Allegheny Conference. And here in Philadelphia, you have um, great institutions in the uh, Greater Philadelphia Chamber, Select Greater Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania Economy League, the um, CEO Council. In Pittsburgh, those are all under one umbrella. And that allows um, businesses and other institutions that are um, interested in the success, the economic success of a region, to really um, align their assets and and get their um, 
get their priorities uh, consistent and, and work towards some some big things that uh, that can only be done with a sustainable effort. And so I led the, the business priorities there. I worked on uh, tax policy that would allow um, more companies to invest and grow workforce in, in that region. Uh, we worked on regulatory issues to make sure we had a, a regulatory climate that was both protective of the underlying interests, but also um, did not serve to discourage businesses. So very exciting time. Got to work with CEOs of and you know and and top officers of the major uh, corporations and entities in in Pittsburgh, and it was then that I really started uh, getting the bug about energy and realized that um, really everything comes back to how do we um, how do we power the the economy literally, <laughs> um, and uh, we looked at an energy strategy that made sense for southwestern Pennsylvania at the time, and in the course of doing that, I had the the real privilege of learning early on about what the shale development was um, and what it meant and what its potential was. Um, and so when the uh, the natural gas industry uh, needed to um, really start to grow in uh, first in western Pennsylvania and then throughout the rest of the Commonwealth uh, and, and into adjoining states, the Marcellus Shale Coalition was founded and I was the first hire and really started that from scratch in January of 2010. So uh, it's been the, the last four years. It's been an incredibly uh, exciting time, uh, not just for the country but now, or for the state, but now that um, the Marcellus is such a proven reserve for uh, for energy for us domestically that we don't need to go overseas to get, um, uh, we now have a lot of opportunity sitting in front of us because of these technological innovations that that men and women have uh, uh, have really um, been able to uh, to do here in this country over the last few years. Yeah, it, it is an exciting time to be in the field that you're in, and it's always um, wonderful to be doing something that has so much potential for the future to be changing and, you know, growing. Um, I'm curious to know if your interests when you were younger um, always had to be had to do with, you know, the science field or um, technology or, you know, that's that's something that we don't often see women um, involved in. And I'm wondering where you got that bug from. Yeah, when you well, were younger. literally the bug, right? Yeah, I mean, right. Yes. So um, my um Spent a lot of time outdoors at my grandparents' farm, and um, I think also it was probably if I had to take one time, it was that fifth grade field trip to Camp Conaqui, where you're doing the um, you know uh, capturing the water skimmers and counting the you know number of benthic organisms under the you know under Whatever the rocks, that right? Is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but that was a time when you know the natural world seemed like a you know pretty pretty exciting thing and a fun thing certainly not behind the desk when you're uh, uh when you're out wading around in streams uh, right. and um and that's why when i was at bucknell um uh, you know, really gravitated to not only the the coursework, but spent two summers up there doing research that was funded by the um, uh, you know, foundations that wanted to solve the challenges of nutrient loading into the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, in the in the 80s, there was a, a lot of eutrophication that was happening, so too much nitrogen and phosphorus and other um, chemicals were getting into Chesa- the Chesapeake Bay and clogging some of the natural uh, cleansing properties uh, of that water body. And um, so I was one of the students who, you know, working with my professor uh, who is still there, um, you know, 
tried to uh, do some very basic research to find out why that was happening and therefore, you know, hopefully contribute to the long-term, you know, solutions. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't think science or math or engineering, you know, has to have uh, kind of a, a, a gender overlay. I, I do think that um, it's important if you're passionate about something to try to get as involved in it as you possibly can and right. not just go an inch deep right. Um, right. Uh, and a mile wide. I think it's important to try to go a mile deep, right. <laughs> at least when you're in school, because then that gives you the credibility to know the subject matter. And then it, you have more pathways open to you. Right. So I, I guess that's... Um, Maybe both fortunate to have found a passion early on that led to a degree that led to um, some very tangible uh, uh, experiences with um, with clients and then with um, you know the broader uh, public private uh, engagement that I do now. Uh, but you know I, I think your listeners uh, who care passionately about opportunities for for women, um, you know I think we probably need to to think about anything you want to do, but go deep on it. And, and be serious about it, even if it'll change later on, right. um, you've established a, a credibility right. that, um, that will only help you in the long term. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that, you know, to go deeper, because I think that that comes from a certain confidence um, in your abilities and in yourself. And um, I'm wondering how you feel that we can get more young girls to not you know, they maybe they have that passion, but they don't have that confidence to go deeper into a field that perhaps was historically um, male-dominated, which really is the sciences and the engineering. And we're seeing it a lot more now, but I think that we need more women in those fields. So how do you think we can help the young girls, you know, when you think about the high school girls, for instance? Right. Well, I mean, I'm certainly not an expert, and I'm a mother of two boys, so... <laughs> <laughs> But um, I, I, I guess I would have to say that the attitude of my boys in their respect and support of, you know, girls that they're friends with, I think it has to start at home. Um, there are no uh, gender roles in our household. Um, you know, we renegotiate every couple years uh, who, who has to do what um, based on who's feeling innovative or who's sick of what tasks. And uh, I think that, you know, our sons have not grown up seeing um, mom only doing these tasks and dad only doing these tasks. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's um, maybe it's asking a little bit too much of, of young women and young men. But, you know, when you're thinking about who that mate is going to be for hopefully the rest of your, you know, mutual lives together, um, you know, asking the question about how do you feel about how we're going to manage these tasks? Because mm -hmm. it might seem like a real tactical issue, but it's the kind of thing that allows women and men, um, you know, to be able to have options and, and take risks. Um, if you're both in the workplace, it's awfully, um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's awfully more secure, uh, than, you know, if, uh, if, if those roles are so defined that they, you know, they don't have as many, you know, options. So yes. I would just encourage young women and men and high school is a great time to have these conversations, um, to, to be honest with each other, but what do you expect in terms of how many kids you want to have? Or, you know, what, what do you think about, um, you know, what women should be doing to keep a household running? You know, who should be doing the laundry? Who should be, uh, yeah. right, um, right. Who Talk should be doing openly. the grocery shopping? Yes, yes. Very mundane tasks when you are a young person, maybe. But um, I think it makes or breaks the ability to flourish in careers and to, to be aligned with the person that you're going to be doing that uh, negotiation with right, really right. For, for years to come. Yeah, negotiation is key in a marriage. <laughs> <laughs> um, I Sometimes I think the greater lesson is 
who are the boys? You know, when you said you have two boys, we're always talking about how we need to educate and encourage and support the young girls. I think if we educate the young boys about women's abilities and about the opportunities for them to welcome in women to the table, so to speak, that might be even more powerful. Yeah. Well, and also their job to do laundry and clean up dishes exactly. and go to the grocery store. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. What, uh, what was the background of your mom and dad? Um, well, my mom was a, a, a journalism major in um, in uh, in college, and uh, and my father, um, yeah, very technically capable um, business major, and uh, actually started his own uh, company when I was just a, a couple years old. Okay, so, an entrepreneur. Um, grew, yeah, grew up with a, an entrepreneur, which you know certainly gives that flexibility. Um, that uh, you know when uh, when we needed to uh, when he needed to get away from the office and go skiing on a on a Wednesday in the winter, he could do that with his daughters. Right. And, uh, yeah. and you grew up in a good area to do that. You uh, know, well, not too far from the I was going to say, if um, Western Pennsylvania skiing is probably not as good as some other places around right, the world, right. but we may do. Colorado, <laughs> Aspen. <right>. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd like to know what your very first job was out of high school. Um, if that was something, did, did you have any jobs that were not related to what you're doing today? Well, actually, you know, speaking of my dad's business, um, I worked for two summers in high school for him. Um, the first one, he built a, a new manufacturing plant. Um, he was a small manufacturing business. And so um, it, I guess it was somewhat of a general contractor role. You know, one day we'd be, um, you know, uh, lining the ceiling with insulation. The next day we'd be sealing the cement floor or painting, you know, the new offices. And, um, you know, I think that was great not only to be part of a um, you know, part of an effort that was there was family involved there, um, but also yeah, probably got more responsibility than I would have had otherwise. You know, in a high school setting, because right. I think Dad knew he could he'd trust me on that. Right, right. right. Um, so I think that was uh, probably the first uh, that the first job. Um, you know, and then uh, you know during college there was always um, you know different jobs during the summer or even different during the school year, mm-hmm. and in particular applying for that research grant, um, you know, that involved having to find, you know, the apartment over the summer in college and having to, um, you know, really, we, uh, that, that was kind of the, the first step into, uh, uh, into to managing your own, um, you know, your own day around a work day and found, oh my gosh, that work really fills up a lot of the day. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Those weekends got uh, even more, uh, even more dear. Um, right. But it was interesting because uh, my best friend at that time um, also worked a few summers at college and, uh, and I was out taking water samples from a, you know, from streams and, um, and she was, uh, you know, working in a, uh, in a furniture factory down the street. And it was great at the end of the day to get together and compare notes and right. decide both what you wanted to do and what you didn't want to do right. out of those jobs. Well, so. was, she, was she asking you, why are you out there taking water samples? <laughs> oh, she, was a little, she was a little jealous. I'd come meet her for lunch and she had been in a desk and I had been out taking water samples of streams. Right, so. right. So um, when you graduated Bucknell, yep. and then did you go right to Carnegie Mellon? for? No, no. I spent 10 years um, in environmental consulting after that. And okay. I think, um, you know, graduate school, I'm sure people have different um, theories on this, but whether you're going to law school or, you know, getting an MBA or other advanced degrees, uh, I do think it helps to have a few years of work under your belt. Um, you know, you talk about balancing that uh, – uh, kind of that that home and and work life and um, and you know I had had every intention of uh, doing an MBA here in Philadelphia but 
things happened, got a promotion to move back to Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, had a first child, then had a second child and thought, you know, if I don't do this now, I'm not sure when I'm going to do it. Right. So um, so really worked the, the calendar to try to do as much of those classes in the evening. So, you know, I could be home during the day with, you know, with young kids, but, you know, certainly... Um, uh, worked with a lot of great uh, au pairs over the years who okay. we would, you know, host in our home and, and uh, you know, who um, really uh, brought, I think, an appreciation of different cultures um, to, you know, to, to our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, also gave us that experience of having a, a, a young woman in the house, um, you know, who was uh, as much our friend as, uh, you know, as, as the kids' uh, caretaker. Right, so. right. Um, so, you know, that was a lot of juggling in those years. But... Um, I think, you know, having kind of completed a very successful um, long duration at one company gave me, you know, uh, credibility. It wasn't a hopping around situation. It right. was a, a really solid experience and, and worked hard to get through different um progression of my career while at that company. I mean, sometimes you can do that successfully company to company, Mm -hmm. but I think it's always important for young women to, um, you know, to think about where are the opportunities within the company I am in now and ask for those. I mean, the worst that happens is someone says, oh, that's not available right now, or you may need to do X, Y, and Z to get to that next level. But if you don't ask, you certainly aren't going to know (laughs) what's what's open for you. So um, I think that was probably a, a lesson and looking back on it, that um, there was a brand new um, practice that had just started after the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments were passed, and it was very early on in my career. And I thought, you know, seems to be some exciting stuff going on mm-hmm. over there. Let me raise my hand and volunteer to, you know, help out with that new work area. And, you know, sure enough, you get your foot in the door early. Um, it seemed risky at the time to go from one stable, established apartment within a company to a new one. But in retrospect, um, couldn't have been a better move professionally because then all of a sudden you're opened up to um, – presenting to audiences as the expert very early on in your career because you've learned uh, a skill or you've learned an area that um, that others don't know yet. Mm-hmm. So um, right. uh, and, and also, you know, earning the confidence of uh, of your supervisors and, and of those whose reputations are really on the line as to your performance. And and, uh, you know, there's no substitute for um, yeah, for putting in that that work right. and for, um, you know, and for performing. Um, and there's uh, you know, that that'll take you a long way. So. Um, so, yeah, going back to business school was after having a lot of great exposure to different businesses um, and knowing that was the right advanced degree that I wanted. I, I think sometimes if you just jump a little too early. Um, and you don't get too many shots at an advanced degree, both because of the incredible financial expense yes, of it, but, but yes. also the time commitment. And for every year you're doing that, um, you know, you're not doing, you know, the other things that uh, that could be there's opportunity costs. Yeah. So um, a couple of years under your belt, I think, helps make that decision. And, and it helps make you a more can, a, attractive candidate to a lot of schools because they know that you, um, you know, that you have some real world experience That's you can right. bring to that That's classroom. Right. That's why I think that the, the co-ops are such a wonderful, huge, huge. huge. You know, my son just started at Drexel and uh, he's a freshman. And uh, yes, he's, he's all about that co-op situation that it will put him into some real world, you know, working and really getting an idea of 
what it's like aside from the book work and the you know the classroom. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And President Fry um, was at uh, our uh, the Marcella Shell Coalition's conference, Shell Insight. Oh. He welcomed several thousand people to Philadelphia and just did an incredible uh, job on behalf of the city of uh, of positioning research and development and all the work that universities can do uh, for an industry like oil. Right. And gas. I- I'm anxious to meet him. I hear wonderful things about him. Um, Katie, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to uh, learn a little bit more about um, the area of natural gas and what the coalition is all about. Great. Thank you. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. The Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at wpn at villanova.edu or visit their website at villanova.edu slash wpn. Go Nova! Do you know Saltz Matkov? Would you like a legal team with over 100 years of experience working for you to defend litigation in the areas of business and contract disputes, employment, transportation and aviation, products and premises liability, intellectual property and construction? We are Saltz Matkov and we can help. From Wall Street to Main Street, we represent Fortune 500 companies and small businesses alike, achieving successful results inside and outside of the courtroom. For a free consultation, contact us at 484-318-7225 or visit us on the web at saltsmatkov.com. That's S-A-L-T-Z-M-A-T-K-O-V.com. Large firm expertise for a fraction of the cost and with all of the personal attention you need. Serving Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Call 484-318-7225 or go to saltsmatkov.com. Welcome back, everyone, here to Women to Watch on WWDB AM 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm in the studio today with Katie Kleber, who is the very first CEO of the Marcellus Shale Coalition. And we were learning a lot about Katie's background and her her education. And I thought we might um, come back from the break and talk about um, how this coalition formed and how it was brought together. I think it's important to to point out that you've been very purposeful in bringing together, you know, a very good team, people that um, have the right knowledge and education. Um, and I'm wondering how that 
first began? How did, where did you be, start with that? Sure. Um, well, there were about a dozen companies who were exploring uh, whether it would make sense um, economically and geologically to develop the Marcellus Shale here in uh, Pennsylvania. And um, those those companies started to get together to address what needed to happen here, which was basically to um, modernize the regulations. They were written for shallow vertical wells, and the technology today is much deeper, a mile plus down, um, and drilled out horizontal wells. So different technology, um, a lot of what was been done before, but just at a different scale. And so, um, uh, you know, the, that the, those 12 companies um, started to, to talk and realize that what they were really going to need, given the huge opportunity this was, um, was kind of a, a blank slate on a coalition approach that was going to um, just not be your your typical trade association, but that was going to have um, a much broader look at what needed to be, you know, done. And so, um, you know, that that group ended up in November of 2009, putting bylaws together. And, you know, the first thing they needed to do after, you know, passing those bylaws and electing officers was, of course, to hire staff. And so um, because I'd been doing a lot of work in, um, uh, you know, in the energy field, had the ba- environmental background, uh, understood, you know, uh, the business and had the potential to, to learn more, but also was very familiar with Pennsylvania. And, you know, all of us who live here know it is uh, certainly a um, heterogeneous state. <laughs> um, you know, you, you get different uh, attitudes and preferences and approaches, uh, you know, in, in the central, the northeast, the southwest, southeast. Um, and you have to understand that in order to navigate both the, um, the community issues as well as the, you know, the legislative process. Mm-hmm. And so since then, um, we're now at 16 staff in five different locations across Pennsylvania. And we've done exactly that. We've aligned our staff to the areas of the, the state where um, uh, where they're most needed. For example, a gentleman who's up in State College, uh, was a former employee of the Department of Agriculture, a Penn State grad, um, is a rock star in the agricultural community, knows his way around, you know, that very important constituent for the oil and gas industry. Um, and we've, uh, you know, we've placed folks in around the state to um, to really work with our members, the, the oil and gas companies and all of their suppliers, and as well as local partners. So, you know, we, we cast a very um, broad net in terms of which companies we felt um, wanted to be at the table, and we were very pleasantly surprised. Not only is it um, the, the household oil and gas company names, uh, uh, but it's also really 96% of the gas coming out of Pennsylvania is being produced by our board member companies. So it's a very representative group, mm-hmm. but we didn't want to leave out all these great companies, uh, law firms, environmental consulting firms, um, service and product uh, manufacturers who are part of the supply chain. So uh, well over 200 of our members are those um, uh, that uh, that kind of second tier of the supply chain that are all serving the oil and gas industry. Mm-hmm. And and those are people who employ Pennsylvanians who, you know, want this to be successful here. So we've put that many more um uh, you know, people behind the effort, kind of shoulders to the to the door, and and four years now, I think we've been able to make a, a a big impact on not only how people understand oil and gas development and and what it means uh, economically and how it can be done safely, um, but we've also I think raised.
raise the standards um, to, to earn that trust. Uh, I think there's also been um, a, a lot of work done in uh, – uh, in making Pennsylvania and the Marcellus an example is evidence in that conference we had here in Philadelphia uh, in, in late September, uh, making Pennsylvania an example of how you can do it right. Because now a lot of other basins, a lot of these other places around the country that are also developing oil and gas resources from shale uh, are looking at some of the standards and some of the work we've done here. And right. it's really exciting to be in that leadership position. Right. You know, I think it would be helpful. We're, we're talking kind of broadly about um, the Marcellus Shale, and for some of the listeners, perhaps they've never even heard of it because it is that new as far as being out there. Um, I'd love for you to explain exactly the process, sure. kind of what takes place, and why that affects so many different industries. Sure, sure. So um, we've long in uh, you know, gotten oil and gas out of the ground to um, you know to heat our homes and and uh, to light our homes and to, to fire. Um, uh, you know, to, to run manufacturing businesses and others. Um, but, uh, you know, I think everybody understands that that, um, uh, that we also have to go overseas for that fuel. Um, so what has happened in the last 10 years is technology developed here in the United States has made it possible to get oil and gas out of uh, what is shale. I mean, think about like the, the tile on a shale roof. Um, you know, it's a very dense rock. And yet um, when you crack that, uh, you can release different hydrocarbons. Some of it can be natural gas, which uh, is the same gas that you use on your um, on your stove, on a natural gas-fired stove. Um, it can it includes propane um, that we use in our backyard grills, and that, that you know is used for other industrial applications. And that Braschem, for example, right here in the Philadelphia, the Marcus Hook refinery, um, you know, processes for different applications. Um, it also uh, can include oil, like up in North Dakota, um, the same or similar process is used to get oil out of that tight rock that is now coming by rail car primarily to the Philadelphia refinery where they are, um, you know, able to bring a lot of those jobs back that were, you know, that were at risk several years ago because of American, um, you know, crude as opposed to bringing that uh, that oil from other places. The process is... Um, it's a highly technical process. What you have to do essentially is you have to lease um, the rights to tap that resource from what's typically in Pennsylvania, the surface owner. So if I own a farm, um, I you know may uh, own both the surface rights, but also own the mineral rights, uh, the, the coal, the oil, the gas. Um, so I sign a lease um, and it's a, you know, it's, I'm now a business partner if I sign that lease with an oil and gas company that says I give you the right to drill underneath my land if the drilling rig is going to be somewhere far away because you can go horizontally with these wells. Or I want you to actually or I allow you to actually put the rig itself on my property drill down and then drill horizontally maybe into my neighbor's, uh, underneath my neighbor's um, properties, uh, assuming you have uh, done that contract with my neighbors. So we've got a lot of um, uh, royalty owners, these uh, landowners in Pennsylvania, why the ag community is so important to us, who are our business partners. Um, they, uh, by law, receive um, a minimum 
royalty of one eighth of the value of that resource. So twelve and a half percent of uh, you know if there's a hundred dollars coming you know coming out, they get twelve dollars and fifty cents of it minimum. A lot of those landowners have negotiated you know different or higher rates. They can't you know they don't negotiate lower rates. Um, but it's uh, it's a very unique thing in this country and and pretty rare for around the uh, around the world that. It's the landowners who are participating in this process. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, governments own, and out west in the Rocky Mountains, for example, um, you know, the, the federal government alone and states own a lot of that subsurface. But here, it's primarily with individuals. So, um, so when it comes time that you're allowed to do that development. You have to get um, significant permits. Um, you have to make sure uh, that you're meeting erosion and sedimentation plans. Um, so when you put that well site temporarily there, that you're not allowing silt to run into streams, that you're um, capturing any potential spills that could occur on that site. And that whole process, um, you know, is very specific. You know, what you say you're going to do, you have to do. You're inspected. Um, all those inspections are up on uh, the State Department of Environmental Protection's website to see how you're doing. Um, then you drill uh, that well. Um, you use several different drilling rigs to do that, some that are smaller that um, make sure that when you're going through the water table, you don't disturb that, and then others that go deeper and then turn horizontally. And then you do um, the next stage, which is called hydraulic fracturing. So you um, actually put high-pressure water down into that um, that uh, that hole that you've drilled with lots of steel and cement around it to keep it strong and to keep it separate from the surrounding environment. And you are breaking open that rock that allows those hydrocarbons to, to flow back up um, through the well. You capture that in pipelines, and for decades, that well will continue to deliver more at the first number of years and less over time, but still enough over time that um, those are going to be economical wells, you know, our projections show for for decades. Um, so what's happening now? Well, Pennsylvania uh, two years ago went from being a net importer of natural gas. So we needed more as consumers across the state than we were able to produce through um, the more traditional methods that have been used in Pennsylvania for, for a century. Um, now we are a net exporter of natural gas. So New York City, um, Boston, New England, the East Coast of you know, New Jersey um, has access to gas being produced not way out in the Rocky Mountains or way down in the Gulf or from overseas. Um, this natural gas is coming from from just nearby in Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. That makes it a lot more um, cost-effective. Effect, cost so heating your home with gas, natural gas, now is a lot cheaper than it was uh, even a few years ago. Electricity is cheaper than it was expected to be when rate caps came off because so much more electricity is now being um burned by lower natural gas. We've seen improvements in uh, in air quality uh, because when you're burning natural gas, it's a lot cleaner burning fuel. I mean, think about when you use natural gas on your stove. You don't get a residue. You don't evacuate the the kids and the dogs and, uh, and grandma. <laughs> there's they, no smoke. Yeah, there's no smoke. There's no yes, ash. Right. Um, and so it's a you know it's why we use the term clean burning fuel because um, you know it's it's one that uh, uh, you know that 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 has long been known for that. But what's really important, too, about this product, uh, it's not just the natural gas. It's all these other hydrocarbons, the propane, the ethane. Ethane is a a major, um, uh, it's the first step in plastics manufacturing, ethane to ethylene. Ethylene then can create all sorts of products that we use every day. Um, 
we are now producing more of that here, which allows more manufacturing opportunities at lower costs. And so you're seeing a, a renaissance, kind of a rebirth of manufacturing in, in the chemical industry in particular, mm -hmm. um, domestically. A lot of those jobs in the last 20 years have gone overseas. Right, right. And here we are um, able to have the very building blocks of those industries, not to mention the fuel they use, um, you know, plentiful, um, not scarce anymore, yeah. um, which is hard for us to get our head around because you know we've kind of grown up thinking oh those you know oil and gas are, are scarce well at this point there is more ga natural gas being produced than um, uh, than, than uh, frankly than my members are happy about because the prices are now so low right but that's good for consumers it's good for businesses it's good for the country right. and you know our challenge at this point as a society is to really how do we harness that incredible opportunity and make it an, a benefit for uh, for us both from a national security perspective um, so we're not having to fight overseas for the fuel that we can, you know, get right out uh, from from under our states. Yeah. You know, we spoke before the show um, briefly about the different types of energy. And, and, you know, you gave a very great example of you said something about, um, you know, nothing comes from nothing. I think when people yeah, yeah. are trying to learn about what's happening with this um, development, their concern, of course, is, you know, some of the... Um, some of the risks involved. And I wonder if you can speak to that. Sure. That, that example you gave I thought was brilliant about, you know, no matter where or what types of energy we're, we're gathering, um, they all come from something and they all, you know. Um, yeah. The, no, yeah, nothing's for free, that's right? That's right. That's well, right. And, um, you know, I, I think that... Uh, in, in, in a lot of different things, but certainly in, uh, in energy, there tends to be too much of an us against them. And uh, one of the important things we did in the natural gas industry is recognize that natural gas is an excellent partner to solar and wind. Gas, you have, you know, you have it when you need it. Um, it's very easy to be uh, turned on and off. Wind and solar are intermittent, so you can use that gas to complement you know, the, the alternatives. We also know that coal and gas um, have a lot in common. Um, in, in particular, um, they are often taken from the same areas and you have to coordinate. Um, you don't want to uh, not, you don't want to waste the coal because you're going down below it to get the gas and rendering it uneconomical. By the same token, the coal owners that are shallower can't say, no, 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 you can't drill through our coal to get the gas down below. So there's been a lot of coordination that has, has to happen. But I, I think in, in society we're uh, very or too often we're jumping to pitting these energy sources against each other as opposed to recognizing how fortunate we are to have them all and the right strategy for a certain region might not be you know all of one or all of the other it's a it's a appropriate complement and you know it's it's great to be able to think that we can get something for free but um I think the alternative uh, energy sources, uh, you know, wind, for example, is seen as a, um, you know, a zero, zero emissions. Um, and who would want something that's zero emissions? It's, it's a great, um, you know, it's a, it's a great uh, uh, idea, but it's just not true. I mean, wind farms need a lot of space. Um, they're going to be there for the duration of that energy production. They need um, coal to produce the steel <laughs> um, that produces the, the blades and the, the structure of the wind farm. 
farm. They certainly need fuel in the trucks to move those wind farms to where they need to go. And, and so, you know, I think we need to start looking a lot more holistically um, and that the policies aren't an all or nothing. I'm for this source or I'm for that source. It's got to m- much be what's best for that part of the country and how the economics work. You know, all the more reason we need uh, a lot of young uh, men and women, um, you know, who are looking at the economics of energy right. um, and not, you know, kind of looking at it as some political, um, you know, or policy judgment. Right. Um, right. There, there's, a, there's a lot we have in this country and um, we should be optimizing all of it. Right, exactly. We're going to take one last quick break and we'll be back with Katie Kleber, who is CEO of the Marcellus Shale Coalition. Women's Professional Network of Villanova University sponsors and supports programming for all Villanova women in order to encourage professional growth and development. The purpose is to connect women from all five colleges to educate and ignite change. They are thrilled to have this organization to foster creative collaboration with women across all industries. For more information or to offer ideas and suggestions, please contact them at WPN at Villanova.edu or visit their website at Villanova.edu slash WPN. Go Nova! It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the mutual fund store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Welcome back to the studio, everyone. I'm here today with Katie Kleber, who is the CEO of the Marcellus Shale Coalition. And we're talking all about different uh, energies and and um gas and all the things that the uh, coalition is doing to try to continue the development of these resources. And um, I wanted to know if you could address, um, there are controversies and and people are concerned about some of the um, dangers involved in this development. And I wonder if you can talk about what some of the initiatives are in place that address these issues. Right. Um, yes, and there there are plenty of them. I, I think kind of looking back on the last four years of our work, um, we can really hone in on the ones that we feel have had the biggest impact. Um, you know, the the concerns are hard to pinpoint. Um, some people have cons- legitimate concerns because they haven't, they don't understand it. It's, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive to think about a resource being developed a mile below your feet and out, you know, two miles in every direction. I mean, that just isn't something um, that, that, that seems, uh, uh, you know, that seems intuitive. So, but there's other folks who really are in, I would almost call it a, a professional protester uh, mode. So it's their job to be out you know, generating concerns um, because they get paid to do that. Um, what we've tried to do very much is focus in on um, those individuals, um, you know, and there's a there's a lot of them who 
who, you know, want to learn more and who will look at the information they receive with, um, uh, you know, with an eye uh, that is that is open. Um, and so, you know, what, what's first and foremost in, in making that happen is we have to have our house in order. Um, the technical issues, um, meeting the regulations, doing what, um, you know, we all as citizens hold our state government, uh, you know, accountable to uh, to you know, to do with any industry, making sure that they're running their operations, um, you know, the way that the regulations uh, say. So, we put in place a, a series of what we call recommended practices. Um, we've released um, uh, quite a few of those uh, publicly because you know we want to make sure that the public understands the transparency uh, that this industry, you know has and needs to, you know, continue to have. Um, and we've also really paid attention to, uh, you know, to every single detail. And it's amazing to see people who, when they first visit a well site, having heard or, you know, having some picture in their head of what it looks like and then getting out there and saying like, well, where's the Where's the activity? It's like, well, this is it. I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly pristine, um, you know, well designed, temporary. You, know, you end up taking away that well site because once the you know once that um, or take away that that pad because once that uh, drilling is done, um, when it's in a production stage, you don't need. All that inf- all that stuff there anymore, um, but we've really tried to pay attention to um, how the industry learns from each other on best practices and what worked for one and, and accelerating that learning curve. And I, I think that our, um, as I heard the governor say um, a few weeks ago, um, that, you know, inspections are up, uh, but so is compliance. Um, so we want that. We welcome that, um, that, that eye on us and, you know, those inspectors coming in and looking at what we're doing because that's what helps build that public confidence for the long term. Um, you know, a lot of legislative uh, issues um, in Pennsylvania, we have, you know, like the largest full-time legislature. I mean, there's a lot of people who, um, you know, who want to be, uh, you know, engaged on this issue at this point. And so, you know, we do have to do a, a lot of education of policymakers, um, you know, both at the state and at the local level. Pennsylvania has um, you know, 2,600 municipalities, uh, and, you know, two-thirds of those are involved in some way with this development. So there's a lot of a work lot with of government, eyes. a yes. lot of work with government. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's it's good uh, to have that many people engaged and eventually, you know, educated. What's been tricky is we are a pretty fragmented uh, commonwealth. Um, you know, there is no one, you know, single person in charge. And so you end up dealing with layers and layers of regulations. But the industry has to step up to that and I think has done a very good job of being responsive to those uh, concerns. And then, you know, the the education has been, you know, huge as well. How do we... Um, communicate what we're doing in real time uh, to build that trust. And I think uh, one of the um, efforts that we're particularly proud of, uh, last year in Philadelphia, we launched an Ask About Shale effort. And we went to, um, you know, a a wide range of focus groups. We um, put up uh, advertising to drive people to a website to ask their questions. It was were real questions from real people. If they wanted to put their name or the county of the five county region where they were from, they could. Um, And we ended up getting questions from people not only just around the whole Delaware Valley region, um, but uh, also, you know, from around the 
country now. And those questions have been very helpful to us because they aren't worded in a way um, that is contrived or that is gotcha. Some of them are, I guess. <laughs> um, but they're, they're real people saying, help me understand how this piece works or why my lease does this. Or And we answer those questions on the Learn About Shale, um, so www.learnaboutshale.com website. And we try to do that wherever possible with third-party resources. Um, and we do it in a way um, that is very basic um, so you can quickly get an answer to your question. Mm-hmm. And those are really questions in the areas of the technical. How is this done technically, which is a, um, you know, which could be a, a whole degree program in and of itself. Um, how is the, uh, what are the environmental and, and safety questions? Um, quite a few of those, as you can imagine, um, which uh, what we were just talking about. Um, there are questions related to um, uh, economics, where are the jobs? Who's getting the jobs? What kind of jobs are there? There's 240,000 jobs in Pennsylvania right now that are attributed to the presence of shale development. That's a big number. And so more and more people are realizing that there are career opportunities or business opportunities. How do I sell products and services into this industry if I'm a, um, you know, if I have a, a, you know, a small business or if I have a, um, a landscaping business? I mean, all sorts of questions like that. And then the fourth area we think is um, there's fewer questions, but very, very interesting ones about the, re- the role between the industry and government. And, um, you know, this uh, industry really got up and running in the Rendell administration. There's been now four um, secretaries at the Department of Environmental Protection under two uh, different governors. So, um, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, different um, regimes, but the issues are still the same. It's how does the government um, appropriately regulate enough to be protective of the environment that they're mandated to protect, um, but not so much that they drive this investment to other places. Uh, and there is a lot of competition for this capital right now. Um, you know, we're not guaranteed to have this development happen in the next, you know, 10, 15, even 50 years if there are other places, um, you know, that are more attractive. You can't see a better example of that than New York State, where uh, Governor Cuomo has chosen not to allow that development. And um, if it, it's pretty, um, I think it's pretty tragic for the landowners in the southern New York, uh, upstate New York, uh, when they look literally right across the border and they see you know, their neighbors that just happen to sit in a different political jurisdiction, being able to enjoy the benefits economically, being able to hang on to their farms, being able to buy new equipment, um, you know, being able to send their co- their kids to the, the college of their choice. Mm-hmm. And because of um, what has you know really been a political fear in New York, that hasn't happened. And so, you know, it, that relationship between the industry and government, I think, is a, a very important one and uh, one that will you know, deserves a lot of attention in the in the months and years to come. Right. And that's an area that gets probably more heated than any area. You oh, know, gosh. A, a Not just on oil and gas development. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. On all, all types of areas. But really, your organization has been just incredibly transparent. You probably couldn't be more transparent in, in educating and answering questions and saying this is what's being done. And you talked about the process. And I wonder, is there is there actually a visual? Is there a, a video where you you can watch and see how it's done. Oh, absolutely! On our website, website. MarcellusCoalition.org, um, you know we've got we've got that. Um, we have a whole speakers bureau that takes out all that technical information to any group. Um, mm-hmm. There's a request for speaker on our website too, and I think we've done a, a really good job of uh, of 
saying yes. I mean, sometimes it's it's hard because the days are only you know so yes, long. Um, exactly. But uh, but you know that transparency when we you know talk to different groups and in other places. I was in Australia talking to them about burgeoning um, shale industry there, and um, at our conference here in Philadelphia, we had folks in from Colorado, North Dakota, and Texas, along with the yeah you know, Pennsylvania, and and you know we talked a lot about the the different. Um, uh, geology, the different regimes in these different places to, to address the technological issues. But I think the, the conclusion you know, that, that I have about the transparency is there has never been a time where we haven't been happy that we've been out in front of an issue and been more transparent. We've never said, you know, it's been, it's scary sometimes because mm-hmm. a lot of this information, um, you know, is now all on the internet. <laughs> Anybody can see anything. Um, but I think uh, from disclosing, um, you know, the, the chemicals used in the process that our board voted to do even before it was a, a state regulatory and uh, requirement um, to, uh, you know, showing the information on how much each well is producing. Uh, you know, you can go on to DEP's oil and gas website and identify any well and find out how much gas, how many liquids, how much waste, um, how, how it's been, you know, inspected, mm-hmm. what are the results of that. And so I think all that information, there's a lot of it, but it's coming at the right time for the industry, and we stand behind you know, what that information says. Yes, and you have to hear it more than once. It's really, <laughs> you have to hear it over and over and yeah, over. Yeah. Um, but you, know, you mentioned uh, there's only so many hours in a day, and, and I'd love to know, you are an incredibly busy woman. You're, you're here you know, doing this radio show with me. You have another meeting in Philadelphia. You're heading back to New York. Um, a lot of our listeners are, I hope, are women who are... Um, trying to figure out what what their next step is going to be and I'd love to hear how you manage your day so you you just look refreshed and ready to go <laughs> and you I know that you're excited and passionate about you know what you're doing which is very helpful but how do you manage the day all of the different things you have to do yeah well I mean I, I think that the things that you um, have to say no to are, you know are probably the hardest and, and no saying no is difficult especially you know what we've done uh, with the the uh, Marsala shows everybody wants a piece of inf- of my staff time and my time and and so we've had to be very focused on you know what are the top tier issues that are often important but not urgent right mm-hmm. I think everybody struggles with that urgent versus important economic uh, is always at the top yeah, of the yeah. list well and um in the issue so uh, you know what what you want to make sure is that this uh, resource is able to be developed. So there are some things that are mission critical on that. You know, if uh, if a policy is coming down the you know the pike that's going to kill it, well, we better all be turning our attention to that policy. And what you feel bad about is maybe you had a meeting that afternoon that was with the um, you know a wonderful nonprofit who wanted to engage you know your industry on a fundraiser. Um, you have to postpone that meeting. And it right. breaks your heart because, you know, those people are very, very good at what they're doing. But I think where we've structured the coalition is that um, we've stayed focused on the underlying drivers of this business. And there will be no, you know, nonprofit engagement if there's no industry presence. So, um, you know, these first four years have been, you know, very focused at that. I mean, on the personal side, um, you know, I try to carve out you know the the morning. If you need to get it, you know, the earlier you get up, kind of the more the more runtime you have before right. you know before a good the nice final, sleep first before the final uh, bell rings. Yeah. Um, but but the things that get cut out on the personal side, unfortunately, are instead of. Um, 
you know, instead of baking the cookies, maybe you do have to write a check or buy the cookies. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. But... I have no problem with that. <laughs> but, uh, but I think, you know, staying focused on family because, uh, you know, in kind of a, a family life that's not running smoothly can mess up everything at that's the right. office. So, right. um, you know, so you carve out that time. You're very protective of those uh, vacation days that you block on the calendar months ahead and, and you know, do whatever you can to, to not let that time, you know, get interrupted. But really, at the office, it's hiring the right people. Um, and, the, you know, it's the people who you know are going to go above and beyond what you even thought they were going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that's what carry, that's what allows then the entire organization to perform at a level um, that, that no one leader or no one individual then, you know, has to be superhuman. Right. And you, you must have to do a lot of delegating. You, you have to delegate. You're, yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we only have a few minutes left. And and before we go, I'd love for you to give your contact information. Should anyone have questions or want to get in touch with you? Sure. I think the best place um, to go for that um, is our website. So um, MarcellusCoalition.org. You see a listing of our staff. um, And most importantly, you see a listing of our our leaders. So the 45 companies who are our board of directors um, from Sunoco Logistics and UGI and PVR and others who are located here in Philadelphia, you know, in the southeastern PA, uh, to companies who are headquartered in northwest Pennsylvania, who have regional headquarters in Pittsburgh or their, you know, their global headquarters in Pittsburgh. And a lot of them, you know, are, are global companies. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's important. And um, and then the other 200 plus associate members are all listed on there as well, as well as our jobs portal. Um, that links to every one of the open positions that our member companies have posted. Mm-hmm. And uh, we continue to get more traffic on that part of our website than anything else. Um, <laughs> even the exciting news stories don't get as much um, interest as that jobs listing. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, we're all listed there. Uh, and um, I, I think that's a great place to go for more information on all the issues we talked about. Yeah, today. That's terrific. And I think the fact that you have, as you mentioned, 300, you know, partnering companies, somebody's going to have uh, know somebody somewhere. You know, <laughs> if you want to reach out to somebody, you know, with a network like that, you're bound to find somebody. Yep. So uh, thank you so much for coming oh, in today. You. I really appreciate it. I think it was very educational, and um, I think it's going to clear up a lot of questions that people have had. Oh, I know it did for me. Well, it was a very very refreshing interview. You, uh, you, you brought out some things I haven't thought about in years, That's so thank great. you. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thanks so much. That's it, everyone, for this week's Women to Watch here on WWDB AM 860. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and if you'd like to get in touch with me, feel free to give me a call at 215-313-5561. Thanks so much for tuning in and have a great week.